Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Auditorium. I'm Andrew Parks, the Assistant Director of Lectures and Seminars. I just want to thank you for joining us today and take the opportunity to remind everyone to please silence your cell phones. For those who are watching the program online, you're welcome to submit questions by emailing speaker at heritage.org. Additionally, the program is being broadcast and recorded and will be available on the Heritage website within 24 hours for future reference and archiving purposes. Now it's my pleasure to introduce the moderator of today's program, Emily Gao. She is the director of the DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society here at the Heritage Foundation. Emily? Thank you, Andrew. Welcome, everyone. The thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Those unforgettable words have inspired countless athletes to dream of winning the highest prizes in sports. But women and girls were not always encouraged to have these dreams. In the 19th century, participating in sports was seen as immodest for females. And though the departure of men for the battlefield in World War II led to the creation of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, when men returned home, women left the playing fields. And as recently as 1967, organizers of the Boston Marathon declared that women were physiologically incapable of running 26 miles. But five years later, Congress passed Title IX of the 1972 Educational Amendments, requiring schools that receive federal funds to establish separate women's teams in athletics and to provide comparable funding facilities, coaches, and competitive opportunities for females. The purpose of establishing separate women's teams was to create opportunities for women not just to compete, but to excel. Think for a moment about what would have happened if Title IX had just required that men's teams allow women to compete for spots. The concept is self-defeating because with rare exceptions, women would not have had realistic chances of making the teams because of men's physical advantages. But fortunately, Title IX did create separate teams for females, and the results have been tremendous. In 1972, only one in 27 girls played sports, and only 300,000 participated in interscholastic athletics, compared to 3.6 million boys. Today, two in five girls participate in sports, an increase of over 900%. And according to the Women's Sports Foundation, girls who play sports stay in school longer, suffer fewer health problems, and are more likely to land better jobs. 
Ernst and Young research shows that 94% of female C-suite executives played sports. But now, in the name of equality, there is a movement to allow boys and men to compete against girls and women. Supporters of the Equality Act argue that the legacy of the civil rights movement that gave African Americans equal opportunities must now be expanded to people who identify as the opposite sex. But this analogy is flawed. Separating the races was different with different water fountains to sleep in different motels or to play in different athletic leagues was not based on physical differences between the races, but on the immoral beliefs that one race was superior. However, separating the sexes in private facilities and in sports has been done to acknowledge the inherent physical differences in male and female bodies due to our biology. As Duke University Law School professor Dorian Lambelette Coleman testified last week at the House Judiciary Committee's hearing on the Equality Act, there is no overlap between the levels of male and female testosterone. So overwhelming is the advantage of testosterone that thousands of men and boys could defeat the women's gold medalists in the 400 meters at the Olympics. Professor Coleman wrote in the New York Times, it doesn't matter that there are 100 females and three males in a girls race. If the three males win spots in the final or on the podium because they are males. It isn't discrimination to tell a male athlete that he must compete against other males, but telling all female athletes that they must now compete against males doesn't merely set them back. It will be, as Professor Coleman announced, the end of women's sports. Here today to discuss these developments and what can be done are a diverse panel of women. Bianca Stanescu is a runner herself and the mother of Selena Sewell, a 16-year-old track and field athlete from Glastonbury, Connecticut, who recently won eighth place in the state championships where two males who identify as females placed first and second. Beth Stelzer is a competitive powerlifter and the founder of Save Women Sports, an organization that seeks to preserve biology-based eligibility standards for participation in female sports. Dr. Jennifer Bryson is a former college water polo player and the author of Let All Play, a report that advocates for inclusivity and fairness in sports by keeping political and religious exclusivity out. Madeline Carnes is a William F. Buckley Fellow in Political Journalism at the National Review Institute. She has written extensively on gender identity, including its implications for women's athletics, free speech, and children with gender dysphoria. And Doreen Denny is the Senior Director of Government Relations for Concerned Women for America, the nation's largest public policy women's organization, where she oversees engagement with the legislative and executive branches. And we're especially grateful to have Concerned Women for America as co-host of today's event. Please join me in welcoming the panelists. You can start the video. Thank you. Hi, my name is. We've got Selena's video playing. Hi, my name is Selena Soul, and I'm a 16-year-old high school athlete in Connecticut. I want to tell you about my high school experience, so this won't happen to other girl athletes in the United States. I started doing track with my mother when I was eight or nine years old and loved it. 
I started competing in elementary school in the Hershey Track and Field Games and qualified to the state level every year as the first place winner in my town. Then my mother and I started competing together in the Nutmeg State Games when I was 12 and have been doing it ever since. I couldn't wait to get to high school to compete for my school since that was the only place a track and field program was available. Until high school, I ran cross country to be physically ready to compete in track. It was my dream. But my high school track experience has not been at all what I expected. I competed as a figure skater for many years and found the results to be subjective rather than objective at times since artistry is combined with technical performance. I knew that that would not be the case in track and field where the fastest time or the longest jump would win. All that changed my freshman year when all the other girl athletes in Connecticut and I faced another challenge, having to compete against boys. We all watched in surprise as our chances to win had vanished. The fairness in track events that we knew was gone. It only got worse the next year when another athlete who competed for three seasons as a boy started to compete as a girl just a few weeks later in the outdoor season. I qualified for the final of the 100-meter dash at the Middletown Invite, which features the best athletes in Connecticut. Eight of us lined up at the start line, waiting for the gun to go off and hoping to be the first across the line. But while six of us were only about three-quarters into the race, two girls were already across the finish line and butting chests as boys do in victory. Athletes and coaches watched in disbelief. What just happened? Two boys identifying as girls happened. Before the, that race even started, the father of one of those girls said, It's all over now. And it has been all over for girl athletes in Connecticut. Fair is no longer the norm. The chance to advance, the chance to win has been all over for us that are just girls. All my mom's efforts to get the Connecticut Interscholastic Athletics Conference to review and find a solution that both girls and all transgender athletes, not just transgender females, have a fair chance to succeed, have gone unanswered. The media has been even worse attacking us and portraying girls as sore losers and that we should try harder. We do train very hard, but when a mediocre boy athlete can outperform the best girl out there any day because of their physical superiority, we are just losers, not sore losers. I missed the chance to compete in the New England Championship this past season because of this. No one is listening to my mother and the other parents who tried to change the CAC policy. So I decided to speak up for every girl in Connecticut who lives every day in hurt and disappointment and who are afraid to speak up because of retaliation from the media, school officials, and coaches. Despite this, CAAC won't listen to my voice, but I hope Congress will. I will not be quiet about this. H.R. 5, the Equality Act, will impose a nationwide transgender athletics policy on America. It will endanger women and girls of all ages by opening up every sports team in the country to any male who self-identifies as female. This policy will take away our medals, records, scholarships, and dreams. I can't allow this, so I'm standing up to tell Congress. Protect us. Don't take away our dreams. Don't pass H.R. 5. So all of you have heard my daughter, and um, it's something that I've been speaking out for a while now, and she has decided to follow in my footsteps and stand for her fellow uh, girls athletes out there. And she mentioned to you about a couple of the races 
where we all watch surprised as the girls' chances to succeed have been pushed aside. Athletes, coaches, and parents have been watching in disbelief as the first spots at the invitationals in the girls' events have been won by boys who are identifying as girls. After that Middletown meet, that overnight switch that my daughter was talking about prompted me to contact CIAC, our Connecticut uh, athletic governing body, and demand an explanation of how something so profoundly wrong could be allowed when girls' sports are designed to have girls get the chance to experience a safe and fair competition, fair victories, and yes, fair defeats. I was originally told that gender is determined by the school district, but a boy could change only his gender before the start of a school year. That information turned out to be wrong as I discovered a week later that the same athlete was still competing as a girl. I reached out to our school athletic director and following her call made to CIAC, we found out that gender can be changed between sports season as well. CIAC has also told me that I would need to change the law in Connecticut if I don't agree with the current policy. But again, I learned that this was not true. When I called my state representative office, I was told that no such law exists. They told me instead that it's all under the jurisdiction of CIAC and the school districts and well within their power to set requirements to maintain a fair playing field in high school sports. For the past year, I have made numerous attempts to persuade CIAC and our school principal also and the athletic director to open discussions and review the current eligibility rules. They're eliminating our girls' opportunities to succeed and only offering them a chance to participate. Currently, in Connecticut schools, as well as other few states in the country, it only takes a pen and a paper for someone to change their gender identity, and that will apply for sports as well. It can be done anytime or as many times as wanted. It's only a matter of time, and it only takes a handful of boys who compete as girls before the field of sports, girls will be dominated by boys, and girls will be left out of those five, six spots available to advance from a class to state to a New England championship. With only two boys identifying as girls, my daughter was one of the girls who otherwise would have qualified, but instead lost her chance to advance in the 55-meter dash event and compete in the New England championship. My daughter became a spectator that day in her own sport. I've been joined by two other parents of girl athletes from Connecticut who are also denied the chance to win. One of them is here in the audience today. It's unfortunate that although many parents believe the same thing, do not speak out because it's not their girl or because they're simply afraid. But that will probably change when it becomes their girl who was the one denied a victory or a qualification that she had earned. In the meantime, girl athletes competing every week live in fear to speak out due to the possibility of retaliation from coaches, from school officials, 
as well as hurting their college scholarship opportunities. The media portrays parents who speak out for their daughters as haters and as trying to ban trans athletes from sport. And that is what the girls fear the most, the way media will portray them. That cannot be farther from the truth. Our efforts have been focused on starting a dialogue with CIAC and exploring options to find a solution that can maintain the fair aspect of sports and competitions for girls. Boys' bodies are simply different, larger, stronger. Current CIAC policy unfairly gives male athletes who identify as transgender females an advantage to win at the expense of a girl who are very well documented and scientifically established physical disadvantages. As my daughter Selena said, we all know the result before the race even starts. It's demoralizing. CIAC has provided me a statement that I heard again during the House Judiciary Committee meeting that a transgender female is a female and should be treated as a female. But when it comes to biology and bodies and physical performance potential, that statement has no scientific basis. There are many areas where biological sex is not a factor, such as in education, housing, and workplaces. But in an area where one's biology profoundly affects one's ability to compete, such as athletics, that is fundamentally false statement. Whatever a boy may feel about his gender identity, gender and sex are not the same. Sex and (laughs) biological potential of the body is embedded in our DNA from conception. And the physical reality is what matters or it should matter in athletics. So we are going backward. Our young women are facing the same problem girl athletes faced back in the 70s when indoor track was not available for girls and only for boys. Courageous women, which some of them I have met, gained the right to compete separate from men under Title IX. Now, 40 years later, women are losing that right again in Connecticut and other states around the country because they are allowing boys to compete as girls in the name of gender fluidity. National Federation and the state athletic organizations in all states were created back in the 1920s to ensure fairness in sports. A long list of additional requirements were implemented, including separate teams for boys and girls, based on the knowledge that boys and girls have different physical abilities. It was done, even according to CIAC handbook, so no athlete or school had an advantage over another. Those extra rules do not apply in an educational environment. In a competitive physical environment, a boy's perception of his gender should not be the reason that a girl loses an opportunity for a medal. But that is what's currently happening in Connecticut. HR 5, the so-called Equality Act, will open up every female sport in the country, as my daughter said, to any male who self-identifies as female. This policy will take away medals, records, scholarship, and most of all, girls' dreams. I can't allow this to happen, so I'm speaking out to protect girls. Thank you.
I have been reluctant to speak, but I now realize the importance of using my voice. I hope the discussions that arise from sharing experiences like mine will help create a space for everyone to be heard. Thank you all for listening. I'm not one to involve myself in politics. I don't hold ties to any side, and I consider myself a realist. I work hard, raise my family, and manage to find time for my athletic pursuits. This is not something I want to do or enjoy doing, but if I can give courage to other women, especially girls in high school sports, then I will speak out. I had never been involved in competitive sports before, but in my 30s, I took up powerlifting. I had dreamed about entering a United States powerlifting competition, and this year, I finally did it. For over two years now, I have hit the gym a couple hours a day, five to six days a week. I have stuck to a strict nutrition plan by counting every calorie and macronutrient. I even scheduled my meals. The training program was grueling, and balancing it with caring for my family required as much, if not more, discipline than lifting the weight. After competing at some small local events, I finally grew the courage to sign up for the United States Powerlifting Minnesota Women's State Championships in February. Everyone has challenges in life, and I had several personal setbacks along this journey. I almost lost my dad due to complications of diabetes, but I managed to nurse him back to health. Then, my most cherished supporter, my grandmother, passed away. This was immediately followed by an unexpected loss of pregnancy, which was very painful physically and emotionally. There was times I wasn't able to train, but after every setback, I found myself back at the barbell. There's a saying in the powerlifting community, there's a beast inside of every woman that unleashes when you place a barbell in her hands. That's what this sport has done for me, and that's what I hope for other women. While pushing my body to lifting over 300 pounds off the ground, my mind grew strong as well. It's allowed me to stand tall after surviving domestic abuse and stalking. I no longer have the panic attacks that used to cripple me. Powerlifting has empowered me. Imagine my surprise and heartache when the event that I had been dreaming about and working so hard for was jeopardized by controversy. Transgender athletes, men who identify as women, were trying to compete in the women's division after the USAPL created a policy that preserves women's right to fair sports by not allowing biological men to compete as women. Rumors of protests were rampant. I had no idea what to expect or what I should do or say. I felt lost and alone because lately, standing up for women is labeled transphobic. I spoke with the USAPL state chairman. He assured me that everything would run smoothly, but there might be a few silent protesters. This whole transgender movement was very new to me. Although I knew, we all know, that men competing against women is not fair, I still wanted to approach the situation with compassion. So I took a deep dive. I spent countless hours reading articles and watching videos trying to understand, but I felt like I was drowning. I no longer felt the competition was a safe place for my biggest supporters, my mom and son, to cheer me on, and I wasn't ready to explain this to an eight-year-old, and he wasn't ready to be exposed to such controversy. I contemplated if I should still compete. After seeing the online backlash of anyone who showed opposition to the transgender agenda, I was silenced by fear and in a situation that I never thought would be my reality. I was then struck by another setback. My son needed his appendix out the night before the competition. Being my most dedicated training buddy, he knew how much effort I had put into this and was adamant that I still compete. So with much guilt, I left him in the care of my mom and hit the road. I was shocked when I arrived to find that there were only 82 competitors there out of the 120 that had signed up. 
This is unheard of with the rising popularity of my sport. There's no longer the competition that I had signed up for. 14 competitors chose to time out at the bar by standing in silence instead of lifting, while protesters gathered around, clapped, and chanted for the full minute that is allowed to attempt the lift. In powerlifting, we perform three lifts, the squat, bench, and deadlift. At competitions, we are separated by sex and weight, and we get three chances at each lift. The best of each creates your total, which determines the winner. This gave the activists each nine chances to protest, which most took full advantage of, and resulted in well over 90 minutes of disruptions. With two platforms of competitors lifting at the same time, this uproar carried on regardless of whose turn it was. It is no exaggeration to say that this unsportsmanlike conduct ruined the event. This was definitely not the silent protest that I had anticipated, and I was devastated. Unlike baseball or other sports where there's a game to go to the next day, with powerlifting, it will still be weeks or months until my body is ready to compete again. The activists demanded fairness for themselves, but didn't consider if their actions would be fair to me or the other unsuspecting attendees. They did not show respect, professionalism, or courtesy, all core aspects of the code of conduct that USAPL members pledged to follow. The athlete at the center of the protest, a man who identifies as a woman, just weeks prior to protesting, won the Women's State Championship in a different non-drug-tested federation while setting new women's state records along the way. This transgender-identified man lifted 150 more pounds than second place, a woman who deserved to be champion. After the meet, when I and several others expressed our disappointment about the ambush protest on the official social media group, we were told our feelings were transphobic, petty, bigoted, and even racist. After the meet, I and several others Excuse me. The activists demanded an immediate policy change, and Minnesota Congresswoman Elon Omar expressed support for them in the claim that transgender advantage is a myth, and she even threatened legal action. These gender extremists demand that we accept their feelings as science and are attacking basic biology at its core. Women are being silenced by this harassment. I recently received a gruesome death threat for trying to save women's sports. These displays of hate are a prime example of why most are afraid to speak up. Such harassment invokes the very fear that transgender rights activists say they seek refuge from in the very group they demand inclusion in. They bully women, all while claiming to be victims of bullying. Women are afraid if we speak up, we will lose our sponsorships, opportunities, relationships, and even our jobs. My perspective is not religious or political. It is based on my experiences and scientific facts. If biological men are allowed to compete in women's sports, there will be men's sports, there will be co-ed sports, but there will no longer be women's sports. We should not force women to compete with men. This is why I am fighting to save women's sports. Please join me on the right side of history by visiting savewomensports.com to learn more. Thank you for your time. When I played soccer in a girls' league in elementary school, our high school did not even have a girls' soccer team. Now my high school has a team that feeds players into top university women's soccer teams. When I volunteered last year as an elementary school soccer coach in D.C., it was exciting to know the girls I coached could play throughout their school years 
and perhaps even play at the various, very highest levels of international soccer. When I was born, there was no such thing as a Women's World Cup for soccer. This year, I'm organizing my calendar for the month of June around the games that I'm excited to watch during the Women's World Cup, which starts June 7th in France. We cannot take for granted the opportunities available now for girls and women in soccer and the hard work of many people over many years to open up the game of soccer to female players. This is one of the reasons I'm deeply concerned by the efforts of transgenderism advocates to threaten soccer opportunities distinctly for girls and women. Soccer is one of the most popular sports for girls in America and one of the greatest international successes of American women in sports. Our U.S. women's national team has won four Olympic gold medals, and they've won the World Cup three times. And the team is currently ranked number one in the world by FIFA, soccer's governing body. However, in 2013, the U.S. Soccer Federation adopted what they call an inclusion policy. The U.S. Soccer Federation is the governing body of all forms of soccer in the U.S. and serves as the international representative to FIFA for American soccer. This inclusion policy does not apply yet to the national teams or to professional teams, but it does apply to all other levels of soccer in the U.S. The U.S. Soccer Inclusion Policy states for the purposes of registration on gender-based amateur teams, a player may register with the gender team with which the player identifies, and confirmation sufficient for guaranteeing access shall be satisfied by documentation or evidence that shows the stated gender is sincerely held and part of a person's core identity. Documentation satisfying the herein stated standard includes, but is not limited to, government-issued documentation or documentation prepared by a healthcare provider, counselor, or other qualified professional not related to the player. This policy never defines what it means by gender or identity or evidence, and its requirement for documentation is so broad and vague as to be meaningless. This policy gives zero consideration to girls and women who face a safety risk, to say nothing of outright unfairness, from playing on the field in what can be a contact sport with larger, stronger, faster boys and men. England today, can you go back? Slides. England today has world-class women's soccer with extensive professional opportunities, and their women's team is ranked third in the world. In 2004, a member of the House of Lords was concerned about protecting women's sports for girls and women from transgenderism. He read a series of statements provided by sporting associations about adverse impacts transgenderism would have. The statement provided by England's Soccer Association, there known as the Football Association of England, argued, the participation of transgender athletes in their acquired gender could threaten the fundamental requirement of a, quote, level playing field, unquote, in sport. Mixed football is currently prohibited by the Football Association rules for players over the age of 10 due to the comparatively greater physical strength of male players. Disparity in strength levels would, in our view, lead to increased risk of physical injury. This seems like common sense, 
But that was 2004. Bodies haven't changed, but now ideology has. This is no longer the policy of the Football Association of England. Now they have adopted vague language, arguing that an individual's gender identity should never be a barrier to participating in and enjoying our national support sport. And in England, due to transgenderism, safety and fairness for girls and women are no longer a concern. So far, there are only a few high-profile cases of males who identify as females, such as in Spain and Tasmania, taking spots away from players on professional teams. There's also one case of a male taking a spot away from a female on a national team in a World Cup qualifying match, and sadly, this was celebrated by FIFA. And these situations still make the game unsafe and unfair for women. When I talk with friends regarding my concern about transgenderism in soccer, some respond that the number of transgender players is small enough that I should not be concerned. I ask you, what number of girls and women subjected to otherwise preventable injuries in soccer are we supposed to think is acceptable? What number of girls and women losing opportunities to earn a spot on a high-level team and compete for college scholarships taken instead by a male player who demands to play in a female league are we supposed to think is acceptable? Are we really supposed to offer up some unspecified number of girls and women who want to play soccer as sacrificial lambs to the ideology of gender identity? I argue we should not. Slide. There is another problem. In June 2017 and 2018, that is during what's now known as Pride Month, the U.S. Soccer Federation required players on our men's and women's national team to wear USA jerseys with an LGBTQ rainbow when representing the USA in international games. Not only do I think this is wrong because it was a form of coerced speech requiring players to wear a political symbol, but also the T of LGBTQ transgenderism is a threat to soccer itself for girls and women. I detail this problem in the recent report, Let All Play, Yes to Soccer, No to Politics, available at letallplay.org. The U.S. Soccer Federation should not require players to wear a symbol of a movement that is trying to harm soccer. The U.S. Soccer Federation has lost sight of its mission to support soccer and is now investing instead in promoting gender politics. This harms soccer and is especially unfair to girls and women. Last but not least, I do not want to see girls playing soccer who are tough face pressure to adopt gender ideology and say they are boys. That is ludicrous. If you're a tough girl out there on the field, play your heart out and know that fans of women's soccer like me are cheering for you. You might be just the player with the talent and grit to keep playing soccer throughout your school years and gain all the valuable lessons from team sports, and even make it onto one of America's great university women's soccer team into the National Women's Soccer League, or even our U.S. women's national team, unless these opportunities for female players get erased by demands to include transgenderism. Ladies and gentlemen, 
women and men, females and males. In 1988, Florence Griffith Joyner, the fastest woman of all time, set the women's record for the 100-metre sprint. Now, if Flojo were a male, her achievement of 10.49 seconds would have been fairly unremarkable. So unremarkable, in fact, that in 2017 alone, nearly 750 American male college seniors comfortably beat this time. The male record set by Usain Bolt in 2009 stands at 9.58 seconds. This is uh, explained by the performance gap, uh, well studied, well known, between men and women in sports, which amounts to around 10% in swimming, cycling and rowing, and as large as 20 to 30% in weightlifting. Next slide, please. Um, now, the reason for this is quite straightforward, as documented here by the Washington Post in this helpful graphic from 2014, Fit But Unequal which shows two highly trained Olympic calibre athletes, one male and one female, and the biological differences that affect their performance. He has a greater percentage of lean muscle, his heart is bigger, his body fat percentage is lower, and all of this translates into greater strength, speed and endurance. Now, whoever was designing this helpful diagram presumably wasn't particularly concerned with the personalities or proclivities of the athletes such as they are, nor indeed with how they might identify. The author's purpose was simply to communicate basic facts about the human body in its male and its female form. Now, bubbling along in the background uh, for the past 70 years has been the theory of gender identity. Now, this theory was pioneered by sexologists, academics, and trans activists. And it basically means that uh, each person has a sense of gender distinct from their sex. And when these two things don't align, uh, the person is transgender. And uh, the person who's transgender's gender identity uh, decides who they truly are. Now, the evolution of this theory is a very long and uh, complicated story, well documented by the Heritage Foundation's Ryan Anderson. Uh, but for our purposes, I think it's sufficient to talk about the, the difference between uh, transsexualism and transgenderism. So when uh, sex change, uh, which is not literal, uh, became a surgical possibility in the mid-20th century, the idea was to change the body of a male or a female into the opposite sex for the purposes of um, alleviating distress and um, so that that person might more closely resemble uh, the opposite sex. There was really no doubt in most people's minds that the person was still the sex they, uh, they are, <laughs> the sex that they have had since they began. Um, but this changed, and it changed uh, for a variety of, of reasons, but by about 19, the 1990s, we had uh, transsexualism had become uh, less commonly used, and it was transgenderism. And this idea is quite simply that a person uh, need not have any physical changes at all, um, really, just no, no physical changes at all, but they really are male, female, or neither, depending on uh, how they self-identify. Um, okay, so 
no requirement on self-identification, I think, is difficult for a lot of people to accept. And in 2000, uh, especially as it relates to sports, and in 2016, the International Olympic Committee ruled that a, a trans uh, a woman, which is, which is a male, needed only to take hormone therapy to reduce testosterone levels in order to compete as a woman. Now, the Washington Post, again, um, and this is just a, a very standard article, I just using them because I used them the first time, uh, published an article citing the first ever study of transgender athletes, which apparently showed that um, we all had it wrong in uh, thinking that this, was, this would be a problem. Because the author claimed that this study uh, on male-to-female transgender athletes showed that, and I'm quoting here, as testosterone levels approach female norms, trans women experience a decrease in muscle mass, bone density, and other physical characteristics. And I would invite you again to look at that, um, look at that uh, slide and just, and just think about what that, that's claiming there. These are some pretty uh, impressive uh, drugs. Um, but the study, of course, showed no such thing. It compared the running times of eight amateur transgender athletes before and after transition. We don't know how they transitioned. We don't know how fit they were before or after they transitioned. And in some cases, as, as much as seven years had passed. Um, I just to double check this, I reached out to a scientist and, and the way she put it to me was, this is not science, it's nothing better than a school project. Because the crucial point here is that for males, their testosterone-laden advantages begin in utero, continue throughout childhood and are cemented by puberty, and none of this can be undone. Um, but, ladies and gentlemen, this is being obscured by some very dishonest language, by some curious non-sequiturs to do with civil rights and to uh, with various other uh, rhetorical devices designed to baffle or bully us into silence. Okay, and uh, sometimes it works uh, and sometimes um, the logic of it reveals itself. Um, and if we could have the next slide, please. Okay, the logic of itself reveals itself and I think most people are struck with what seems to be slightly absurd. Uh, so we have a lovely syllogism here provided by Pink News, which is a LGBT emphasis on the T these days, news website, and it says trans women are women. So trans women's bodies are women's bodies. So trans women's penises are women's penises. Okay. Well, at least it's, at least it's logical. Um, <laughs> now, uh, I think, obviously, a lot of us would have trouble accepting that. And we probably have trouble accepting it because of the first premise there. Um, however, if, you, if you're, you do have trouble accepting that, then you will be met uh, with, with, a, with a different argument. And if we could have the next slide, please. Okay, so this says uh, trans women are women, trans men are men, trans rights are human rights. This is not up for debate. Hashtag trans day of visibility. Okay, well, as I said, uh, of course, this has absolutely nothing to do with human rights because nobody is denying anybody's human rights at all, nor is anybody denying anybody's right to compete in sports. Um, what is being questioned here is uh, the importance of sex and whether any person should have the right to compete in any sporting category. Okay, now, this is not up for debate. 
is, is, is especially worrying. Um, and, and when you ask, well, why is this not up for debate? The answer soon becomes, uh, because this is offensive. And it seems to me that uh, being offended is an incredibly useful debating technique. Now, because you don't even have to show up, you just have to say you're offended and you win. Unless, of course, you're a woman who is offended by the notion of a man being a woman by saying he's a woman, or a lesbian offended by the notion that you should date people who are biological males, in which case it doesn't matter that you're offended and you should really be quiet. Um, but anyway, here is another uh, rhetorical trick. Um, next slide, please. Which is repetition. Um, if you say something loud enough, you say it often enough, and you say it um, to everyone, everywhere, as much as you possibly can, there is a chance that some people will start to believe it, uh, especially, I think, children, as we're seeing in our schools nationwide, uh, children as young as five being taught that they might have been born in the wrong body. Okay, well, Shakespeare said, a rose by any other, na other name would smell as sweet, and a man by any other name would still have physiologically male attributes. Um, now, if you're not convinced of this, uh, I, I, I don't know how much I can help you, but I will just leave you with uh, a few pictures to look at. So this uh, next slide. Okay, this is Callum Mouncey, uh, who this is him playing in the Australian men's national handball team. And then uh, Callum became Hannah. And if we could have the next slide. Okay. And I, I like this, the, the picture with the blue background there. I think that's uh, intersectionality just uh, quite well demonstrated. Um, but, okay, so I, I don't really need to say, say much more about that. Um, but if, if you have, if this worries you, if, if you're not convinced uh, and you want to ask somebody, here's a uh, next slide, what you'll be met with. Okay. Um, and then uh, the next slide, uh, please is uh, uh, Fallon Fox in the act of defeating Tamika Brents um, at the total knockout um, in which uh, he, he damaged her orbital bone and re which required seven staples and uh, she, she received a concussion. And she spoke about the experience to a reporter. Next slide, please. Oh, wait. Yeah. Okay, maybe, maybe, I, maybe I missed it out. But she basically said that she's never, she's never felt so utterly overpowered in her entire life, and and that's that's the one. I fought a lot of women and have never felt the strength as I felt in a fight as I did that night. I've never felt so overpowered ever in my life. Okay, uh, next slide. And that's and that's the that's the response. Uh, and uh, okay, and then fi finally we have um, next one. Okay, this is Rachel McKinnon, who lived uh, as a man until his late 20s. And this is him uh, having won first place uh, in the, the track cycling world championships in the 35 to 39 age bracket. And Jennifer Wagner, who came in third place, uh, said had this to say about that. Next slide, please. It's definitely not fair. Okay, well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, women and men, females and males. I am inclined to agree with her um, and I think the answer to the question before us here today is no, it's, it's not fair.
Well, I want to thank you, Emily, and the Heritage Foundation for inviting Concerned Women for America to partner with you in today's very important discussion, and thank all the panelists. Clearly, this is an important topic. I'm the mother of two athletes, one currently playing college baseball. I've witnessed firsthand how athletics have shaped the character of my children as hard workers, leaders, and teammates. My daughter's participation was defining. She wasn't the top athlete, but excelled with hard work and determination, a captain of her volleyball team and on elite club teams. And today, her leadership and work ethic and resiliency from sports is translating in her college endeavors, including Army ROTC. Doors of, open, of opportunity do open for females through sports. A field hockey player at my son's university is the first in her family to go to college, thanks to an athletic scholarship. We're all here today bringing a message to save women's sports. And I'm going to frame this message by reading an excerpt from Legacy.com, which means that it's from an obituary. March 15th, 2019. Birch Bayh was a Democratic senator from Indiana who was the author of the groundbreaking Title IX amendment that banned discrimination against women in college sports. I'll just make this very simple and very clear. Senator Birch Bayh's clowning legacy achievement will follow him to the grave if his own party has its way in passing the Equality Act. Here's why. As we've heard, the Equality Act expands sex and civil rights laws to include gender identity, which is not based on biology but solely on perception, and, quote, regardless of the individual's designated sex at birth. This identity claim would be legally protected and couldn't be challenged at any time males could claim they are female, period. This bill is a top ten priority for the Democrats. If it passes, Title IX protections would be erased for female athletes in order to accommodate gender identity claims of trans athletes opportunities for them would be elevated at the expense of female athletes. And that is why the Equality Act will kill Senator Bayh's Title IX legacy of banning discrimination against women in sports. In addition to openings women's sports to males who think they're female, teams who overnight in hotel rooms would be required to house transgender athletes, meaning male students, with female athletes. This goes for bathrooms, showers, and locker rooms, as we've already seen in too many schools today. We all know that athletics is formative in developing strong character in girls and an avenue preparing women to break through glass ceilings. Title IX has been the foundation for much of this progress. But the errantly named Equality Act will unravel the very foundation of equal opportunity for women and girls in sports. So here's the message. If the Democrats in Congress get their way, resting next to Senator Birch Bayh will be a Title IX tombstone inscribed RIP, rejected in purpose. We're having this conversation today to raise awareness and alarm about the gender identity agenda of the Equality Act and to ask you to join the fight to protect a fair playing field for women and girls. Concerned Women for America, the largest public policy organization in the country, founded 40 years ago on principles of faith and conservative values. We're joining hands with the Women's Liberation Front, who proudly call themselves radical feminists. We disagree on many things, but we do agree on this. Making gender identity a protected characteristic under federal law would erase the protected category of sex, which is the foundation for Title IX opportunities for women and girls. Our unlikely alliance should be a wake-up call that the Equality Act is wrong for women. The unfair playing field is happening, as we've already heard. The International Olympic Committee, the NCAA, the National Scholastic Athletics Foundation, most USA sports associations have created one-sided policies favoring, favoring trans athlete inclusion and fueling discrimination against female athletes. If Congress throws off all restraints by affirming gender identity ideology in federal law, 
It will incentivize coaches to recruit and scholarship the best athletes to create the winning teams. These will be women's teams with biological men and boys on their rosters, and they will be celebrated just like CC, formerly Craig Tefley, who two weeks ago was named Athlete of the Week by the U.S. Track and Field Cross Country Association after winning three titles in Northeast 10 Conference. Many parents and coaches fear they will be bullied into silence if they speak up. At a young age, their daughters and teammates are losing and learning a heartbreaking lesson. We can't win in unfair competition or in a culture that won't stand up to protect our rights. CWA recently received a call from a public school mom in Georgia whose daughter, like Selena, faced a transgender and track competition, who won, of course, uncontested. Her concerns were dismissed by the National Organization for Women and the Women's Sports Foundation when she called them thinking they would be fighting for women's rights. Not so. Thankfully, she found us. And here's what the mom had to say in a letter submitted to the Judiciary Committee last week. To say that my daughter, as well as other female athletes, were humiliated and had a sense of defeatism is an understatement. In the words of my daughter, what's the point, mom? We can't win. Hearing this broke my heart for my daughter and for all the female athletes who train so hard, but no matter how hard they work and train, they will never be able to beat a biological male. What are we doing to our girls by forcing them to race biological males? And I agree with this mother, as we all do here. What are we doing? So let's review. The Equality Act would enshrine gender identity as a protected trait in federal civil rights laws. This denies the biological scientific fact that being male or female is inscribed in our DNA and determines our sex. Sex declared gender identity, self-declared gender identity would be sufficient to claim protected legal status as either sex. Simply put, whatever I claim to be, I am. And such claims could be fluid because gender-related identity and characteristics could be changed at any time. At a hearing on this bill last week, Congressman Getz of Florida asked, if President Trump were to say, I am now the first female president, who would celebrate that? Would those who support this legislation think that's a good thing? Advocates have no response to the legitimacy of that question. More importantly, they are denying the threat of this policy to women and girls. I was in that hearing room, and frankly, I was shocked to hear how women who are 51% of the U.S. population are now an afterthought for those promoting the trans agenda. They are not fighting for females anymore. In 2016, Sports Illustrated showcased female candidates who were college athletes, including Illinois Congresswoman Sherry Bustos and New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, both co-sponsors of the Equality Act. They said how playing competitive sports prepared and propelled them into politics. It took the fear out of losing, said Gillibrand, now a presidential candidate. The testimonies in this article make the case that reducing opportunities for female college athletes would reduce the number of women running for office. Is that what the Democrats want? Supporters have no way of defending the Equality Act against these threats to women, even though basic common sense makes it obvious to most people. Many proponents have blindly jumped on the bandwagon, but it's time they consider the impact. Women will lose, which is why we need you to get active. Use your voice. Join forces through listservs, Facebook groups, your kids' sports teams, however you connect. We need to generate a local movement to save women's sports that makes its way to Washington, D.C. 
Confront your local school boards and athletic associations. Write and tweet your congressman and President Trump that the Equality Act will kill Title IX protections for women and erase fair play. Second, consider carefully who you are supporting. With the intensity of the transactivist political campaign, candidates are having to take sides. You either favor gender identity enshrined in civil rights laws or you don't. Elections have consequences. If you care about this, vote that way. We've produced an Equality Act impact statement with the Women's Liberation Front and Hands Across the Aisle, and we'll give you a fuller picture of just what this legislation will mean for women, and it is very far-reaching beyond sports. I hope you pick this up on the way out and you share it with your neighbors, and please feel free to reach out to us. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Before we get to audience questions, I have a question. Um, during, during the judiciary hearing last week, two of the witnesses on behalf of the Equality Act said that the example of Selena uh, was an isolated incident and that Professor Coleman's statement that the entrance of transgender identifying males into women's competitions would not have a significant impact on females. Is this statement accurate? Doreen? Well, I'll chime in here. Um, clearly not accurate because we've already given you at least three or four other examples today. Um, but I would mention that there are a couple other pretty compelling examples out there right now. Chloe Anderson uh, is a volleyball player at the University of uh, California, Santa Cruz. She has taken, he, excuse me, has taken one of 5,000 Division Three spots uh, for women in volleyball this, this um, in the last couple of seasons. Uh, we have Pat Cordova-Goff, who was born male, but took one of 15 varsity softball team spots at a California high school. Um, there's also a Mission College women's basketball team that won a national cha championship with a six foot eight Gabrielle Ludwig. Uh, this person, the, the, this was a junior coll college um, basketball team comprised of 10 18 to 20 year olds plus this 50 year old, six foot six, 230-pound transgender woman. So, I mean, this is not an isolated case. Clearly, it's happening more and more. And I think the point that I made, which is, if Congress unshackles this, this is going to be everywhere because we're going to incentivize winning teams, which will make sure, which will mean that males will be on the rosters. Period. Also, I'd like to address the question, you know, where the doctor says the impact wouldn't be significant. What on earth does significant mean? If significant means, as I said in my talk, some arbitrary number at which point we start to say, oh, at that point it's significant, I think we also need to look at the significance for the individual girl, um, such as Mrs. Donescu's daughter. Um, it's incredibly significant for her that she's denied fairness. Yeah, I think also just it's facilitating cheating. This is Cheating. The, the point here is that these people are males and shouldn't be competing in female sports. I mean, I, I, uh, I think, I think that, that in itself is significant, even if it was just one girl affecting one girl. It sets a precedent which facilitates cheating. I guess we're all forgetting the word what equality means. So even one person at disadvantage, things are no longer equal. I'd just like to chime in that <clears throat> with all of our examples today, I would like to reply with a question. What kind of floodgate are we opening here? 
Thank you. And now I'd like to open it up to audience questions. Um, please identify yourself and ask your question. Make sure it ends with a question mark. We have um, we have microphones for those who want to ask a question. Please raise your hand, and the microphone will be brought to you. Hi, my name is Christine Pratt, and I am an attorney, a mother, and also I was a high school athlete as well. And I was just wondering if we have heard of any examples of trans male athletes who have migrated over from female sports into male sports, or are there no known examples of that? Well, there there are, but the, uh, there probably are. I mean, we have the case of, um, but but what's happening right now is even the Matt Beggs and the, or is it Matt, Mac, the wrestler in Texas uh, was declared by, even though he's she has been transitioning, was still put in the female competition. And so, of course, you know, beating that competition. But it's interesting that the Women's Sports Foundation has declared in their transgender policy that, you know, if you start hormones early enough for women, for girls, I mean, for boys, excuse me, that are transitioning, it will negate any competitive effect or advantage that they would have in their teen years. Uh, but then they say that, but of course this doesn't go the other way. Girls can never become or never have a competitive advantage over males. So really that's why we're focused on women's sports because that's where the impact will be. We have in our school district, we have through three, there used to be four, but one graduated female that has identified as male and on one particular case she did give up sports and actually parents did not allow her to compete any longer since she would have had to be on the men's team. Uh, this is um this is oh my name is Kevin Pham. Uh, this question is mostly for um, Ms. Kearns, but if anyone else has answered um, for that, I'd, I'd welcome that as well. Um, it seems like you've reviewed a lot of scientific literature as far as um, transgenderism goes. Uh, I got two questions. Number one is, have you also tracked the incidences of transgenderisms over the years? And uh, question two is, is, have you found a single variable or metric that you find to be the most compelling um, uh, illustr illustrator of the, uh, the difference between male and female? Sorry, the, the the second part of the question, I'm not sure I understand. Could you could you say that again? For instance, um, in uh, in track and field, then we have we have uh, you know track times, right? But that's sort of a that's sort of a subjective um, measure. Something like testosterone levels or body mass index, or something like that. Have you found any one of these variables to be the most compelling illustrator? Okay, uh, yeah. So I mean, I think the. So people's I think I think the issue with the way that transgenderism as a as an ideology has changed is definitely that we've moved we've moved away from having any sort of physical requirement. So sex change and hormones uh would make that person resemble a female more. But if you if you think back to the diagram that and the Washington Post diagram, there's I mean all of these in um, muscle mass, uh, the size of the heart. Like, I can't, I can't think of any one particular thing. It all just makes the person male. 
And uh, yes, like uh, superficially, the hormones have, have an effect, like taking estrogen has an effect or lowering your uh, testosterone levels artificially has an effect. But it doesn't fundamentally change the person's physicality. It doesn't. And, and we could see that in the pictures. You know, you could see that that guy was still massive. Um, and so I, I hope that answers your question. I'm, I'm not sure I totally understood it, but OK, thank you. <laughs> This is a comment, and it's also a question. Have they ever thought of just starting their own transgender lead, taking them out and just making them separate from males and females, and that way they can have their own league? Has anyone thought of that? Yeah, so this this is uh, the, the obvious uh, solution. Another obvious solution would be to make me the men's category an open category, so anybody can compete in men's sport because that doesn't affect adversely affect women in the same way. Uh, this is not acceptable uh, to trans activists because it still insists that there's a difference um, and it insists that there's a difference which necessitates segregation, sex-based segregation, which these, they see as a, a moral equivalent of the of the civil rights uh, segregation, which we, we know is uh, is not true, but that is, that is the argument. So again, it all kind of comes back to, well, it's, it's really offensive that you would even suggest that. Colleges actually do currently have a policy for what they call a mixed team. So NCAA already has that set in place. In the back. Um, hi, my name's uh, Miller with the Heritage Foundation here. Um, can you just tell us a little bit more about the uh, politics of the Equality Act at this point? Or um, I, I gather most of the uh, Democratic announced candidates for president are probably endorsing this thing, um, and maybe others. What are the breakdowns within the parties um, of announced support for this at this time? Sure. On the House side, every Democrat has co-sponsored the Equality Act. So they're all, they've just all jumped on. In the Senate, the bill has been introduced, and they're acting on it. So there's another hearing, in fact, tomorrow, the Education and Labor Committee. Um, on the House, on the Senate side, the bill's been introduced. I haven't looked at the uh, how many co-sponsors. It was introduced later, a little bit later. Um, but chances are they will all be supporting with their party on this. Um, and, and the other remarkable thing to me is that so many business groups and others have just jumped on board here. Uh, you know, I know that businesses feel the, the pressure to be inclusive in their workplaces, and that is a component of this. But we're talking about a seismic shift in the way we view sex in our country and how we define that in civil rights law. It, does, it has no bounds in the extent of impact and how it will affect our culture. This is just like pulling the rug out from under us in the way we've understand and always stood for male and female sex distinctions and the opportunities that have been afforded by the Title IX uh, law. And, and that's the thing that's just remarkable to me that they're not acknowledging. The, the Equality Act also it extends to all federally funded entities, which is a lot of entities. Um, and it, it also uh, carves out a specific religious freedom exemption. Um, so it's, it's pretty aggressively drafted. 
There are a few Republicans who supported as well. Um, Representative Brian Fitzpatrick and John Katko in the House. And I believe it's, um, um, there's a senator, Republican senator. Se I think Senator Collins. Senator Collins, who also supports it. But I think also um, Senator Joe Manchin does not support it. And I believe also Representative Dan Lipinski, and they're both Democrats, they don't support it. Yes? Uh, wait for the microphone, please. I'm Victoria from Concerned Women for America. And my question is, what is the end goal? Um, like, what are you guys fighting for? Would it be to, um, instead of the Equality Act, pass an act for women? Um, or would it just be to continue um, each, like, private entity, like FIFA, um, and keep like having them fight for like their own policies or is the answer each individual organization? Um, Cause that seems like a pretty big battle. Well, I, I think also we have to differentiate between the domestic battle and the international battle. So, you know, in the U.S. right now, the Equality Act is sitting right there, and there's all of this momentum about it. And uh, from my perspective, preserving the difference that we've recognized in sex between male and female, um, preserving that and not erasing that is a key goal. Um, and then at the international level, it gets way more complicated. But that, at the international level, the goal of organizations being able to acknowledge that sex exists and there are males and females. Um, I think so. also, it, I mean, we're here today to talk about sports, but this affects really so many other things, not just sports. And, uh, and, it, and I think that we have to take every single opportunity with all the various things that it affects to stand up and say why it affects it and why it's not working and it shouldn't be legally or culturally enshrined. So in the UK, for instance, a big report came out yesterday in the Times of London about what's happening in Britain's main gender youth clinic. Five doctors have resigned saying that kids are, and I should point out that the British approach to gender dysphoria in youth is less aggressive than the United and here in the United States. But five doctors have resigned in protest because they think what's going on is unethical. And uh, some have, have brought concerns uh, which touch so many other things. So, for instance, some of the children, the doctors said, who, who came in, the root cause of their gender dysphoria, in their professional opinion, was that the child was, uh, was actually same-sex attracted and these um, parents had a, a huge problem with that and were trying to turn them into a heterosexual male or female. So you can imagine that would really upset people who care about gay rights and... Uh, and then there's there's a disproportionate representation in autism. So this is something that does that goes well beyond sports. And and my uh, well, I'm a journalist, so my, my job is is just to make people aware of that and and to report on why uh, why it matters. Um, but I think uh, taking an opportunity like this to point out uh, just that <laughs> this doesn't make sense. Like it really doesn't, um, and it has some really seriously uh, negative uh, consequences for the most vulnerable in our society and for women and, and children.
I would just like to point out that the Equality Act would deny organizations the right to deny in their categories however they choose to. So they would not have the option to define men's and women's sports anymore if H.R. 5 was passed. Well, thank you everyone for your questions and for attending, and thank you to the panelists for your courage and facing all the retaliation that you've described. I think it's incredibly important that we continue to have this discussion in the public square. Thank you all.